Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden, the podcast where we chronologically chart the history of this Nordic nation from the first people arriving here until present day. I'm Elsa. And I'm Chris. And today we're going to be talking about Christianity in the High Middle Ages. We've already talked a bit in general about the start of the High Middle Ages, from the end of the Viking period up until about 1130 or so. And in the most recent episode, we had a look at most of the kings of these hundred or so years. Today, we're going to talk about how Christianity really started to dominate public life from now on. Exactly. And at first glance, you might think Christianity, religion, boring, don't care... But it is a vital aspect of how society functioned at this time. I don't think we properly understand medieval Swedish society, or Swedish society later on as well for that matter, if we don't take religion into account. Because, as we'll see today, it influenced so much of how society was run, how the state operated, and really how people lived their lives. Definitely. And actually, some things that you think might be boring from the offset actually end up being the most fun. I remember during my undergrad when I did ancient history at university, I had to sign up for this module. I needed to find something to fit in my timetable. And I ended up picking something called ancient art in context. And I hate art, but it was actually one of the most interesting modules Mm. in my whole degree. We learned all about Roman statues and how they portrayed the people of the time and how realistic they were and all this kind of stuff and it was the best mark on grade that I had throughout my entire time at university from this thing that I felt like I just had to do just because I needed to finish my degree and it was never something I would have picked first and I think that's a bit like this episode. Yeah you should never judge a topic before you really start to research it. As this is still a history podcast and not a theology podcast, we won't be talking about Christianity as such, what specific aspects of Christianity people were preaching and teaching at this time, but it's more about how the Christian country that Sweden was at this time started to shape its history. But as always, we should start with the Swedish phrase of the week, which this week has a bit of a religious theme to it. True, it does. Even though it isn't used in a religious context, the phrase is So in English, that would be late shall the sinner awaken, which sounds very biblical. (laughs) Um, So that implies people who sin a lot sleep later into the morning. I suppose so. I don't really know. I, I haven't been able to find out the history behind this phrase, but maybe if you're up late doing sinful things like, you know, drinking, gallivanting, then maybe you're tired and you sleep late. So I don't know. But what this phrase means is that it takes a long time for people to realize their mistakes and change their ways perhaps too long and it's now too late. Say perhaps that the local council where you live has not invested money in maintaining the roads for a long time. Then there is an accident that makes everyone realise what a bad state the roads are in, so then the council leader announces that 40 billion trillion pounds will be spent on maintaining the roads. Then you might comment on that and say, well... Late the sinner awakens. Yeah, so somebody's been doing something wrong for a long time, like these uh, council workers not fixing the roads, and they're the sinner in this sense. And then they realise this and change their ways, but it's probably too late. They've awoken late, so to speak. That's the meaning behind the phrase. As we know, the concept of sin and sinners is quite a Christian or religious thing in general, and we can think of it in whatever way we like ourselves, but as we say, it ties in quite nicely with the topic of today's episode, so that's why we picked it. And at this point in time, in Sweden in the late 1000s and early 1100s, Christianity definitely was debating the idea of sinners and attacking sin and the people who committed sins quite a lot. They sure did. So should we just quickly remind ourselves where we're at with Sweden and Christianity? Christianity has popped up in quite a few of our episodes. We had Anskar, Chris's favourite guy. Yeah, my favourite. 
<laughs> the first missionary to Sweden. And then we had Olof Skötkonung, the first king that converted to Christianity. We talked about him in episode 23. And we've since seen kings employing fake archbishops or being kicked out of power for being Christian or having to make accommodations with local pagans. And we also saw the first ever abbey being founded in Sweden. That was in our last episode with Inge the Younger starting construction of Vreta Abbey. Yep, that's very nice. And uh, obviously it's difficult to know how your day-to-day people in Sweden at this point would have felt personally because there's, we have no evidence or writings from that kind of people. And, and therefore we don't know their own personal beliefs and their how their attitude to life might have changed or was influenced by the continued cementation of Christianity in Sweden, if we can call it that. So instead of trying to work out what percentage of Swedes were Christian at this point, this will be much more of a look at how things developed publicly in Swedish society as a whole. It's about religion and its structures and how this related to politics and day-to-day life rather than personal faith, so to say. Indeed. Uh, One other thing that we should state, just to clarify it, is that when we talk about Christianity at this point in time, we mean Catholicism. Uh, Sweden has now become a part of the Roman Catholic Church, along with many other countries in the region. Sweden will eventually become a Protestant country, and remains so largely today. And this became important later on in history, famously in, say, the Thirty Years' War, when Sweden was very strongly a Protestant country. But... That's not for another 500 years or so. For now, when we talk about Christianity in Sweden, it's the Catholic Church. Indeed. In fact, the High Middle Ages is a very interesting period when it comes to developments in Christianity in general, not just that in Sweden. It's now that we have the definitive split between Western Roman Catholic Christianity and the Eastern Orthodox Christianity, as I believe we mentioned briefly a few weeks ago in our first episode about this period. This is also known as the Great Schism, and whilst it was an evolving process, the main events took place in 1054, when the two branches of Christianity formally split, but this is drama that's taking place very much outside of Sweden. If that wasn't enough for major religious drama, there's also plenty of internal tensions within the Catholic Church itself as well. Popes come and go, and the papacy's involvement in politics increases, and this does eventually spread to Sweden too. Yeah, and why is it relevant to Sweden? Well, for many reasons is the answer. The entrenchment of Christianity in Sweden and the replacing of Norse mythology with the Christian belief system, that all changes the country to its very core. Whilst, like Chris was saying, it's difficult to know how people felt in their heart as opposed to what was stated publicly, eventually people's entire belief system, how they conceptualized life and death and the world around them, that will all shift away from Odin and Valhalla to Jesus and heaven. We don't know how quickly that happened in people's own personal life, but we know that officially in public practice, Norse mythology had died out and been fully replaced by Christianity by the end of the 1200s, so not too far away in our narrative. In this episode, we will see how further entrenching Christianity in Sweden led to the creation of new societal structures, everything from new ways of dividing up the physical landmass of the country for organizational purposes to the first formalized education system. Christianity also introduces a new elite, a new class system, if you like, in Sweden. With Christianity comes new rules on who's powerful, who's rich, and who's subservient and poor. Christianity introduces a new upper class with archbishops at the top, then bishops, then priests, and other religious persons. 
The fact that this is a new upper class is reflected both in that they become physically wealthy in the sense that they own a lot of land. And we know from our first episode about the high middle ages that land is everything at this point in time. But it's also reflected in a less physical way in that this new upper class enjoy respect, privileges, esteem, a sense of being better than compared to the rest of the population. So it's a spiritual class system as well. If you're a bishop, you're seen as, well, nicer, cleaner, and I guess actually literally cleaner as well. And you're seen as closer to God than if you're a lowly Leguyun, these poor farmhands that we talked about in episode 26. A class system, a system of rich and poor, is nothing new. We saw that in the Viking Age as well. But with the firm establishment of Christianity in Sweden, this system gets a makeover. New players are introduced, their roles are assigned new status, and the system gets a new outfit, if that makes sense. Definitely, and a jazzy one at that. One such new player that gets involved and forms part of the new power elite is these bishops that also mentioned. A bishop is a title and a role that's still around today in many Christian churches. Uh, For those of you less familiar with the structure of Christian churches, a simple way of explaining what a bishop is is that they are an appointed or ordained person of authority within the church's organization. They have religious authority. Bishops were part of this three-tier power hierarchy of church officials that was formally established around 1100. At the top, we have an archbishop who is in charge of a whole country or a large province inside larger countries, almost like a prime minister for church affairs. Below him, there are bishops, and they're in charge of one region or county or uh, province, They inspect churches and make sure that everyone toes the official line, so to say. Um, We might compare them to governors in the secular world. And finally, we have priests who are in charge of just one parish with one church and the day-to-day church activities of a town or a collection of villages, so a bit like a town council. This structure that was established nearly a thousand years ago is actually still how the Church of Sweden operates today. There's an archbishop and then 13 bishops. Although I learned recently, actually yesterday, that there are elections in the Church of Sweden for sort of like the ruling council of laymen. Yeah. And these people who make all the decisions in the Church of Sweden are elected and they almost represent political parties. So you'd have people who say, I'm the Labour Party affiliated person inside the church yeah which is amazing for me Um, there's a democratic body the the church of sweden also on a side note of how what it's like today the current archbishop of the church of sweden antje jacklein she is our first female archbishop very cool yeah and just like you chris and many of our listeners she's an immigrant to sweden Always good to see an immigrant getting to the top. Yeah, she was born in Germany. Uh, I think she's really cool, so I just wanted to mention her super briefly. Uh, But yeah, back to the 1100s. Yes, because whilst I don't think that uh, today's archbishop has quite the same powers or lives the same kind of life as her predecessors, uh, especially back a thousand years ago, um, she still has the same general role. True. She, I don't think she rides around on a horse quite as much as the Archbishop of the High Middle Ages did. No, that's true. But I bet she does more Zoom meetings, <laughs> unlike uh, that Bishop Bremen who wished he had Zoom uh, when he was staying in Germany and not, not coming to Sweden. Um, but I think, as we mentioned in a previous episode, there was no Swedish Archbishop at this point. Uh, it wasn't seen as a big enough or important enough part of the Christian world to have its own archbishop. So they were subservient to another archbishop in other parts of Europe. Up until the second half of the 1150s, Sweden was ruled in this religious organisational sense, either from Denmark or all the way directly from Bremen. Hence why we got all that lovely detail from Adam of Bremen when he was talking about his own area, so Mm. to speak. It was the area that the archbishop of Bremen was directly responsible for. 
whilst there was no local archbishop with the top guy, so to speak, being based abroad, there were Swedish bishops working locally, and they quickly become very wealthy. They owned a lot of land in important locations, like in Sigtuna, and as such, they had access to a power base, both in terms of resources and subservient labourers. Their wealth meant that bishops could live pretty much like the kings at the time, in terms of how much physical goods they had to help sustain them. In fact, they would come to make up a part of the king's council for many of the kings that we see during this period, wielding their political power outside of the church's systems. Adam Bremen writes that as early as 1050, Sweden had four bishoprics. I think we read out this list in a previous episode. Um, so each of these areas would have a bishop in charge of them, that being Birka, Helsingland, Sigtuna and Skara. And the number of these bishoprics would increase over time and the exact geographical area that they encompassed would change and grow as well until eventually we reach the 13 bishoprics with the 13 bishops that Sweden has today. Yeah, but the bishops in the late 11th and early 12th century, they were nomadic. It wasn't until after the 1150s that they started to be more permanently based in one town, uh, a town that then often got like an extra fancy church, more like a cathedral, built to symbolize the permanent presence of a church authority. Yeah, it's like when we went to Sigtuna, there was one church that was more fancy than the others, and they had the bishop had his residence over the lake. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. Yeah, but instead, during the period we're talking about, the bishops rode around inspecting churches and priests, staying just with the local priests, and they were constantly checking on how things were going and making sure that everyone stayed on board with the Christian faith. This is a sign that Christianity and the organization and authority of the church still wasn't to be taken for granted in Sweden. Uh, the bishops couldn't rest and just trust that out in the villages and on the farms, people were just getting on with being Christian and obeying the church. But instead, they had to constantly be vigilant about what was going on. And as we'll see later in the episode, they also had a material reason to go mm. and collect the money that was going to be donated to the church. True. Donated in uh, quotation marks, <laughs> yeah. I think, a lot of the time. But yes, the kings of this period actually lived and ruled in a way that was quite similar to how these bishops were operating. They couldn't just sit at home and hope that everyone and all the powerful nobles around the country were listening to their rules and obeying the laws. They had to go out and make sure that people were obeying them too. They had to show their presence and make sure that people continue to support their place in power. And as we saw last time around, a lot of the kings didn't manage to do that no. because they were removed all the time. But speaking of the relationship between crown and church, in our last couple of episodes about these kings or actually pretty much since Eric Segersel was around, the church has played a key role in both whether or not that particular person became king and how successful or how long they remained king. We saw last time that it's become very important whether a king is Christian or not, and or in some cases whether they were pagan mm. or not. In fact, it's actually not until we start to get kings that are Christian that we can start to talk about Sweden really having a royal structure as such too. It's not until people like Erik Segersel, who was at least partly Christian, and Ulf Hörtkunung, who was definitely Christian, that we have powerful people who are able to gather enough power to call themselves king of all of Sweden. And Christianity played a part in this power structure. And since Sweden has remained a Christian country since then, it's also been hugely important in making sure that they're remembered at all and why people like Adam of Bremen were writing about these kings to begin with. But looking at everything in total, being Christian wasn't solely a positive thing for kings at the time, as we saw with Halstein, Arnon Gorska and Inga the Elder. It can put you at odds with the local population or at least a great important chunk of it especially the ones who are still fervently pagan what we're talking about here the connection between christianity and the monarchy is something that will become 
a running theme in Swedish history from now on. As we saw in our previous episodes, being a king of all of Sweden meant that you had to control these various areas of the country and be proclaimed king in these areas too. You had to be proclaimed king in Svealand, which meant it was important that you had a good relationship with everyone around Sweden. The kings that Adam of Bremen praises for being very Christian more often than not come into conflict with the pagans in the country, in particular in this Svealand region. The pragmatic example of Stenshiel being friendly with the pagans but also spreading Christianity is unfortunately not one that's followed very often. As we're going to look at more of the physical aspects of the church later in the episode, it makes sense to have a brief look now at the physical structure in Uppsala, where this temple was such an important place in Svealand, and it seemed to be the focal point for a lot of the fuss that went on between the Christian kings and the pagans still around in Sweden at this time. Yeah, the temple in Uppsala really is the headquarters, if we can call it that, of the pagan resistance against the Christian kings in Sweden and against the spread of Christianity in general. Uh, there's quite a long description in Adam of Bremen's writing, but uh, seeing as he's going to disappear now as a source, uh, let's take this moment to read it out. So, Adam of Bremen says... The Swedes have a very famous temple called Uppsala, situated not far from the city of Sigtuna and Birka. Near this temple stands a very large tree with wide-spreading branches, always green winter and summer. What kind it is, nobody knows. There is also a spring at which the pagans are accustomed to make their sacrifices, and into it to plunge a live man, and if he is not found, the people's wish will be granted." A golden chain goes around the temple. It hangs over the gable of the building and sends its glitter far off to those who approach, because the shrine stands on level ground with mountains all about it like a theatre. In this temple, entirely decked out in gold, the people worship the statues of three gods in such a way that the mightiest of them, Thor, occupies a throne in the middle of the chamber. Wotan and Friku have places on either side. The people also worship heroes made gods, whom they endow with immortality because of their remarkable exploits, as one reads in the Vita of St. Ansgar, they did in the case of Eric. For all their gods, there are appointed priests to offer sacrifices for the people. If plague and famine threaten, a libation is poured to the idol Thor. If war, to Wotan. If marriages are to be celebrated, to Fricko. It is customary also to solemnize in Uppsala at nine-year intervals, a general feast of all the provinces of Sweden. From attendance at this festival, no one is exempted. Kings and people, all and singly, send their gifts to Uppsala, and what is more distressing than any kind of punishment, those who have already adopted Christianity redeem themselves through these ceremonies. The sacrifices of this nature... Of every living thing that is male, they offer nine heads, with the blood of which it is customary to placate gods of this sort. The bodies they hang in the sacred grove that adjoins the temple. Now, this grove is so sacred in the eyes of the heathen that each and every tree in it is believed divine because of the death or putrefaction of the victims. Even dogs and horses hang there with men. A Christian, 72 years old, told me that he had seen their bodies suspended promiscuously. Furthermore, the incantations customarily chanted in a ritual of this kind are manifold and unseemly. Therefore, it is better to keep silent about them. Well, Adam of Bremen is, is not happy about uh, what's going on at this uh, pagan temple in Uppsala. No, but I like the image of a golden chain yeah. being uh, wrapped around the temple. That that temple is blinged. But uh, in my temple. <laughs> bling my temple, yeah. But in all seriousness, this goes to show sort of what Christianity was up against in Sweden 
Yeah, that's why uh, the Christianity also had to be pretty jazzy, in at least in some ways, because would you go to the Golden Temple down the road or what's Christianity going to offer you? Yeah, well, around this time that we're talking about now, we really see an explosion in the physical structures that are there to compete with the likes of the temple in Uppsala. In 1060, right when Steinschild became king in our last episode, the first stone church in Scandinavia was built in Dalby, then in Denmark, now in Sweden, right outside the modern-day town of Lund. And last week, we saw how Sweden built on that foundation, pun intended, as King Inge the Elder and his wife Helena built Vreta Abbey, Sweden's first abbey and nunnery. Vreta is located in the county of Östergötland, uh, sort of between Lake Vietton and the Baltic Sea, north of a town called Linköping. Uh, something we didn't mention last week was that it seems that Helena also entered the abbey and lived there as a nun after her husband, the king, had died. So she really does seem to have a strong connection to the place. It wasn't just Inge's work. No, she's uh, getting involved and it shows you how important people were closely connected to these big advancements in Christianity in Sweden. And we said last week that the abbey was probably founded in around 1100. Um, that's because we know it was ordered by the Pope at the time, Pascal II, who became Pope in 1099. Inge was only king for another 10 years or so, so a lot of historians place it early on in Pascal's papacy because he probably had a few ideas about how to stamp his authority on Christianity at the time and make a name for himself by ordering a construction of a lovely new first abbey for Sweden. The abbey itself doesn't appear to be especially grand or important compared to other abbeys around Europe, but it was an important step for Christianity in Sweden. In addition to being the first abbey, it was also the first nunnery. And Vreta was a house of Benedictine nuns until 1162, when it was turned into a Cistercian nunnery. And a lot of royal Swedes seem to have had associations with it over the first few hundred years of its life, but the difference between the two types of uh, nunneries isn't really that important for our story. No, I'm, I'm sure it matters to the people who choose to take up holy vows, but yes. uh, uh, minor spoilers for future episodes, but we might not necessarily cover these people extensively as we go forward, so it's worthwhile to mention them now. The first Cistercian abbess was Ingjerd, sister of Charles VII, or Karl Sverkorsson, as he's known in Swedish, a second sister, another Helena, a widow of King Knut uh, V of Denmark. She moved to Vreta as a nun after her husband's death in 1157. And then when we get into the 13th century, uh, the Swedish princess, Helena Sverkostotter, was one of the abbesses. So Vreta certainly has some decent prominence, uh, especially over the next 50 or 60 years in our chronological journey. Although it seems to help if your name is Helena. <laughs> yeah. Because that that's three of them now. <laughs> um, but the Abbey didn't just serve the royal families in life, it also helped them in death. The Abbey's church is the burial place of the King Inga the Elder, plus upcoming kings Philip, Inga the Younger, and Magnus II. Plus, Inga the eldest son, Rangvold, who you might remember died before he was able to accede the throne. Unfortunately for those of us in Sweden now, we can't go and have a look at most of this abbey because the original buildings burned down in the 1200s. They were later rebuilt, but over the following centuries, most of these buildings were allowed to fall into disrepair, meaning that the church is the only major building that still stands. It still very much is a place of active religion, but when we're talking about the whole complex of what would have been there, there's not very much left. The only other building that's completely preserved from that time is the barn, <laughs> of, of all places. Um, so, interestingly, when they started to build the tower of nearby Linköping Cathedral a lot later on in history, they actually used stone from the old refectory at Vreta. Oh, wow. 
vandals. Yeah, well, the Catholic Church likes to take nearby sources of building material to build its things. A lot of the stuff in the Vatican is built from old Roman stuff. and Just nearby source of good building material. Yeah, well, that's handy, I suppose. Uh, It is interesting to contrast these big building projects to the pagan temple at Uppsala, for example. Remember, Inge the Elder is building the abbey at Vreta after he has had to retake his throne after being overthrown by some pagans. So this is also a big political statement for him to make. Interestingly enough, right now, now being February 2021 when we're recording, there's an archaeological dig going on at the site of Vreta Abbey and they've found 70 graves along the road outside of of what remains of the abbey. Caroline Alström Archini is an osteologue who has examined skeletons from 19 of these graves and she says that they represent a good selection of a population uh, from infants to people over 80 years old. And one thing that she's noticed is that the people had very good teeth, something that she puts down to them not having much sweeteners, uh, only honey, really, to put in their food. Which was something we mentioned in the introduction to the High Middle Ages episode. Yeah. Archaeologists are now working on mapping out exactly how large this burial site by Vreta Abbey is. Looks like they got a lot of work to keep them busy in the future, though. So, Definitely. Uh, that's good. And whilst we're on the subject of Vreta Abbey, I think it's interesting to say that a few more things about abbeys in general... This was quite the new it thing from the continent in Sweden in the 11th and 12th centuries. We've had nothing quite like it here before, and it seems to have become quite trendy, for the lack of a better word. It was predominantly men and women from wealthy families who became monks and nuns. In fact, sometimes you even had to pay to join, like a fancy (laughs) religious club. Yeah, Lower-class men and women who wanted to join often didn't become monks and nuns as they couldn't reach that level of spirituality in the classist system Mm. of the time, but rather they were referred to as lay brothers or lay sisters, and they carried out the day-to-day work in the abbeys, cooking the food and cleaning up and and doing all the boring stuff that the monks didn't want to get (laughs) up to. Eventually, these abbeys grew into huge complexes with many inhabitants and owning large amounts of land. Sometimes the abbey even had farms connected to the land they owned, and so the management involved in the whole process was really quite substantial and, and needed these lay brothers and lay sisters to help run the place. After Vreta Abbey was built, it was followed by abbeys in Alvastra and Nydala, in 1143 and then over the next hundred years or so abbeys really took off and several more were built including Varnhem, Riseberga and Julita. Abbeys continued to have a connection to royalty as we saw with Vreta uh, with several Swedish kings from the 1000s through to the 1300s being buried at various abbeys. Yes, they will return at some point in the future. Mm. Look out for them. But it wasn't just with major building projects like Vreta Abbey and other monasteries in Sweden that Christianity was starting to cement its place around the Swedish countryside. But during this period, regular churches were being built, if not left, right and centre, then at least to a much greater extent than previously. And a lot of these churches were becoming more permanent structures, larger and more like what you'd imagine a church looks like today. They were still often wooden structures, although after the first stone church in Dalby was built, this spreads into Sweden and stone churches were built predominantly in the counties of Vestergötland and Östergötland, which was, as we've seen before, already the more established heartlands of Christianity. The construction of these fancy new stone churches were often financed by wealthy locals who were keen to become friends with this new upper class of religious people in the area that the bishops and priests represented. 
The churches from this period were a lot emptier, so to say, compared to most churches today, at least when you came to the objects inside. There was less stuff around, to put it quite simply. Most churches would contain a baptismal font and a crucifix that was sort of the bare minimum, and then maybe a vessel of some sort to serve Holy Communion from, a bell, an altar, and more often than not, only one book. And perhaps surprisingly, that wasn't even the Bible, but rather something that was called a missal, or missale in Latin. And this is a book that contains all the holy texts and songs that are read out during a mass. So it's a bit like a prayer book and a Bible combined. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure a couple of churches had a Bible as well. Oh, yeah. I was a bit surprised when I thought, if you're only going to have one book in a church, maybe... Maybe spring for the Bible, but uh, that's not how they did it. It wasn't just because churches were springing up across the Swedish countryside that Christianity was starting to leave physical traces in the country. Uh, it also had an impact on how the country was divided for organizational purposes. Now, in general, when we talk about Christianity changing Swedish society at the time... One thing that's important to understand is that Christianity is, and was to an even greater extent in the Middle Ages, an organized religious system. It's dogmatic. It comes with a set of rules that tells you how to structure your life. It tells you to work on weekdays and rest on Sundays. It tells you to organize yourselves into congregation, worship together, and celebrate mass like this and have a priest and so on and so forth. And in this aspect of being organizational and dogmatic, it's very different to Norse mythology, which didn't have that organizational structure at all. But with Christianity expanding in Sweden, the need came for the religious authorities to structure the whole business of being a Christian country. All these churches were being built, so it was important to decide who belonged to which church. I mean, if nothing else, to make sure that people went to mass. Christianity now also had to establish a sort of HR department in Sweden and structure things like which priest worked in which church, which churches and their priests belonged to which bishopric and so on. I mean, organizational management was needed, quite frankly. And boy, organization through Christianity we got in Sweden. Yeah, we did indeed. And shout out to anybody who works in HR, because from reading this, it's made me appreciate them even more. Yeah. Extra shout out if anyone works with HR within a sort of religious organization, because that seems tricky. Yeah. And when we're looking at this point in time in Sweden, the most important aspect of this new organization was how the country was divided into these parishes, a process that had begun already in the early 1100s. Which parish, or socken in Swedish, you belong to determined which church you went to, as also said. But it was also a further denomination that was used for everything from legal to taxation purposes. People began to associate you with which parish you belong to. And remember, this is a time way before we have addresses or postcodes or anything like that to determine where you live. So you were defined by which village you lived in and which church you went to pray in rather than anything else. This naturally extended to which parish and which bishopric you lived in. The division of Sweden into these parishes in the 1100s became the precursor to pretty much every socio-geographical division of the country since then. In fact, the modern-day local councils, or commune in Swedish, can trace their roots back to the division of the country into parishes all the way back in the High Middle Ages. Whilst there was far from any democracy in Sweden at the time, and Christianity at the time was very dogmatic, the priests couldn't rule the roost too harshly with the people in their parish. Because Sweden was an entirely rural country at the time, survival depended on priests and farmers being united and collaborating. 
the priests and other church officials simply depended on the farmers working the land and giving them the fruits of their labor. I bet sometimes they also just gave them fruit. Yeah, apples. Yeah, so that they could concentrate on the spiritual work or else the priests would have starved. And similarly, farmers and other land laborers depended on the church both for stability in a society that was now increasingly controlled by Christian authorities, but also for, let's call it spiritual nourishment. They depended on the church for something to enrich your life with beyond the toil on the fields. And this codependency actually meant that local farmers had quite a lot of influence over local church matters. There were organized parish meetings, uh, we don't know how often, but we know they existed, where the locals joined with their parish priest to discuss matters that related to that parish. And so maybe you could say that if the parishes were precursors of modern-day local councils, maybe the parish meetings were a sort of precursor to today's local council meetings. With the division of the country into these parishes and the whole establishment of a Christian way of organising the country came something else that's been a feature of Swedish society ever since. Uh, guesses for what that might be? Well, I can guess because I've done the research for this episode. And you have the script. <laughs> so I'm going to guess, could it be taxes? Yes, taxes, paying money to the state and to the church, something that Sweden is uh, known for, I think. Yeah, I think so. I feel like, especially in the US, that's what we're most famous for. Uh, whenever I meet Americans or I've been to the US, it's like... Ah, you're Swedish. You pay high taxes and listen to ABBA. That's all I do. Every day, it's just Mamma Mia, and then I give money to the government. So it's more like Mamma Mia and then money, money, money. Yeah, I, I, I listen to Money, Money, Money by ABBA whilst filling in my tax form to money, just... Money, money, money. Taxes so to funny the government. In a Swedish world. <laughs> yeah. Do you have to pay for the rights to sing out ABBA? Does Very that count well, as an endi to, a rendition? Might have to pay taxes. <laughs> yeah. uh, ABBA tax. Well, we're a fair few hundred years away from uh, Mamma Mia or any ABBA song, but the taxes are here. Slightly less uh, time before Waterloo, though, if we're talking ABBA. Waterloo. <laughs> Please stop singing ABBA. Gonna <laughs> stop singing and do the pod. <laughs> And now, dear listeners, you understand why Chris and I don't have a music podcast, but a history podcast. Yes. Tell the listeners more about how taxes were introduced to Sweden. Well, we know that some kind of tax system existed during the Viking period as well, where locals had to provide resources and manpower to local chieftains. But during the High Middle Ages, and with the help of this established Christian organization of Sweden, this becomes more formalized and prescriptive. A taxation system that was now introduced by the church was called tionda, which literally means a tenth. And that was quite simply what it was. You would give a tenth of what you earn to the church. There was a similar system in the English-speaking world and still exists today, where if you belong to certain Christian denominations, it's referred to as a tithe. So to pay a tax to the church in this manner is to tithe. The practice is based on a passage from the Bible, and it's been around as a Christian practice for some time already, but was properly introduced to Sweden in the 1100s. As a matter of course, because the nature of Swedish society at the time, the vast majority of this tax was paid to the church in actual stuff not in money. So people gave their grain, food they produced, beer that they'd made, cloth that they weaved and so on to the church. The church then divided this in three parts. One third went to the local priest. That was his salary, essentially. This was what fed and clothed him, quite literally. Another third went to the bishop or to 
other regional church projects. It could go towards building a new church, for example. I'm assuming that in that case, they'd probably sold the stuff to get actual money. And then the final third went to aiding the poor. Uh, there was no formalized aid system or anything similar to a social service system yet, but rather it seemed to have been managed very much on a local level by the local communities with some help from the church, thanks to this money set aside. We saw when uh, the two Swedish women from Birka went all the way down to Flanders, they donated their money to local people in need with the help of the local people in the church then. So it was probably based on a similar sort of thing. Yeah. Understandably, there was criticism at first. Uh, why not? You know, no one loves to have to give away part of their stuff and their income. But the Swedes seem to have accepted and settled into this new system fairly quickly. A system which would grow and develop over time and move into the secular world, and like we said, would eventually become that taxation system that we still have today. Now, before we finish today's episode, we want to briefly touch on two more subjects where Christianity and the formalization of the church played quite an important role in shaping Swedish society and life here during the high Middle Ages. And the first one is education. Sweden's first school system was established gradually during this period, and it's being established by the church. Again, just like with the bishoprics and the parishes and other features of church organisation that we've talked about, this connection between church and education would continue in Sweden well into the 20th century. Medieval schooling, especially in the early part of this period, was very limited. We're talking about a very select number of boys and young men receiving this education from the church, and it was the sole purpose of training them to work within the church system itself, mainly as priests. So it's a bit like an apprenticeship or a trade school, rather than just publicly educating all the kids in the village. Most boys and girls would instead receive an informal practical education conducted by their parents and other adults around them in their homes and on the farms where they would learn the skills they needed to survive in a rural society. Even for the very few boys and young men who went into formal education within the church, schooling was limited. Throughout this period, the church in Sweden struggled with not having enough priests and consequently not having enough teachers. The church was expanding rapidly on all fronts in Swedish society, as we've seen, and they were simply spread quite thin when it came to resources to do all that they wanted to do. Nevertheless, the schools that were established were established around the main church in a bishopric. Here, boys would learn from the age of around seven subjects such as grammar, logic, rhetoric, Latin, and of course, Christianity as a whole. They were also taught singing, which would have helped them to sing ABBA, and is also something I must have, uh, I must have skipped that, I think, uh, that lesson. <laughs> when you went to church school in medieval Sweden. Yeah, I missed the singing classes. Um, and this is still taught in the Catholic Church today, and uh, an important part of Mass. It's not clear exactly how many years a boy would stay in this kind of school. It seems to have been determined to a large extent on a case-by-case -case basis. Most likely, though, a boy was in his late teens when he finished his education and went on to work within the church organisation, as that was sort of the only job you graduated to, was to work in the church after you'd been to church school. We're still a few hundred years away from the first Swedish university, so there wasn't really any alternatives around when it came to higher education, so to speak, other than go abroad, which obviously even fewer people, hardly anyone, could afford to do this. Instead, most of the young men continued by learning on the job, practicing within the church organization. Even without having the opportunity to access university education, the education that did exist was still expensive, both in actual terms and in the sense that by having a boy in school for years and years, 
that meant a loss of income for the family where the boy would otherwise have worked in a rural economy helping out on the farm and instead now had to be catered for and wasn't going to earn any money themselves. Some boys solved their financial troubles by resorting to a kind of organised begging known as sokengong, walking around the local parish asking for money. That's what they did. They would just walk around the parish asking locals to help fund their education with the incentive that they were performing a service to the church and by extension the local community by helping to train into future priests. Yeah, even in its very limited form though, this kind of formal education and book learning was something entirely new in Sweden, brought about by the firm establishment of a Christian organization here. The church took this idea of formal education and book learning with it from the European continent. There had been nothing like it in Sweden previously. The Vikings certainly weren't fussed with a formal education system and they didn't much care for having books. Another thing that Sweden had not had before and that Christianity brought with it during this period is the idea of saints, which is the last topic we thought we'd touch upon in today's episode. Indeed. A saint, just to define very briefly what that is, is a person acknowledged as being holy or virtuous and regarded in the Catholic faith as having a special place in heaven. The idea of saints had been around since the early days of Christianity, but it gets a particularly devout following all around Europe at this time, including in Sweden. Formally, it is the Pope who decides who gets to be called a saint, a process known as canonization. But at this time in Sweden, the people seem to have cared less about that and just decided on their own to make certain people become known as saints. Often it was enough that just a rumour about potential miracles happening after a person had died for there to be then a cult formed around that person and for them to be started to be referred to as a saint. This is the case of the saint Erlin or Helena, as she's sometimes called in more Latinized versions, who was supposedly a rich widow from Vestergötland who lived around this time. Her son-in-law was an abusive husband and was eventually killed. His family suspects his mother-in-law, Erlin, who flees her home and goes on pilgrimage to the Holy Land. When she comes back, she's attacked and stabbed to death with a sword on her way to church. And this tale, even though it seems like it might be a bit thin for us as a basis for calling someone as a saint, is enough for a cult to form around St. Erlin, at least locally in Vestergötland. As a matter of fact, such local cults were often encouraged by local priests and bishops as a way to entrench the Christian faith in the mind of the locals and give sort of like a inspiration of how holy you could be look Mm. you'll be remembered if you're as super christian as helena exactly the priests bishops and even kings seemed less bothered with the religious aspect of christianity and used it more as a way to strengthen the power and authority of the church to the point that they could even order a local saint to be worshipped in a particular area that they felt needed firming up in the locals' attitude to Christianity and therefore help increase their own political power on the people as well. There were several of these unofficial saints being worshipped in Sweden during the High Middle Ages. Often they seemed to have been missionaries or wealthy men or women in that area. The Pope only formally recognised one Swedish saint from the Middle Ages, Saint Birgitta, or Bridget, as she's sometimes called in English, who we'll most likely dedicate probably an entire episode to in the future. But she isn't born until 1303, so we're not quite there yet. Of course, Ansgar was made a saint before we reached the Middle Ages, and he was being made a saint because of his work in Sweden, but he wasn't Swedish himself, and he became a saint quite a while ago, in uh, just after his death in 865. Fun fact, Sweden actually got a new saint quite recently. Nice. Yeah, in the sense that a Swedish person became canonized. Elisabeth Hesselblad, born coincidentally, in Västergötland, but in 1870, uh, she was a nurse and a Catholic nun who re-established the nunnery order of St. Birgitta. Uh, she also hid and protected Jews in Rome during World War II. And 
Elizabeth Hesselblad died in 1957 and was canonized by Pope Francis in 2015, so just a few years ago. Wow, maybe we'll cover her when we reach the 20th century. (laughs) But for now, I think it's time we start rounding off today's episode. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, We've covered quite a few aspects of Christianity and the influence it had over Swedish society at this time, from the new power elite with bishops and priests through to the organisational structure of the parish system, the churches and abbeys, to taxes and the school system and the veneration of saints. As we continue to navigate our way through Sweden in the Middle Ages, it's worth keeping in mind these things and the fact that Sweden was from now on a religious country where the organisation authority of the church penetrated almost every aspect of the society. Definitely. And Sweden is now also very much a part of a larger Roman Catholic structure that covers all of Western Europe. So we're much more closely tied to the continent from now on in that sense. These developments that we've talked about today largely happened as a consequence of a strengthening of the church and the papacy in general across Europe at this point in time. The Catholic Church and the papacy is now much more of an independent power factor. Sweden was still a peripheral piece of this European Roman Catholic power network, For example, the church struggled to enforce aspects of canonical law, so that's church law. They struggled to enforce things like that priests were meant to live in celibacy and not have any children. It seems like many Swedish priests and bishops simply ignored that fact. There are many stories of them being married and having several children, Uh, It got a bit better after a church meeting as as late as 1248 when the papacy sort of said, hey, Sweden, you kind of have to start living by the word of our religious law now and, you know, stop marrying people if you're a priest. But during this period that we've been talking about, the late 1000s and early 1100s, the popes were often quite annoyed at the Swedish church officials for not living according to the law. But nonetheless, even with such issues, there is now a strong connection with the rest of Western Europe, and how the Swedish state develops will be impacted by developments in Catholic Europe as a whole. Yes, Sweden is very much a part of this wider European network at this point. But yes, uh, next time we're going to continue on with the kings in this mini section of the High Middle Ages, the first hundred years or so, and see where we get up to as we come to a bit of a natural speed bump in the road, I think, before things start to change quite dramatically in that side of things. So looking forward to finishing off some of the stories that we uh, mentioned last time around. Yeah. And until then, don't forget to follow us on social media and leave a review on whatever platform you'd like to listen to us on. Someone who has gotten in touch is Alexandre Goncalves Gerk. Forgive me if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly. Sent us a lovely message via Facebook saying... I have recently started to listen to your podcast. I have just moved to Sweden and I'm working with people from around the world where English is the company language. Your podcast is helping me to catch up on both Swedish history and English listening. The episodes are superb and nice. Thanks for the initiative. But thank you for your lovely message, Alexandre. Yes, thank you very much for that message. And um, we have another message for you, which you've uh, probably heard or at least seen before um, in the last couple of weeks, is that we're going to be speaking at Intelligent Speech Conference, which is super exciting. That is very exciting. Yeah, so it's a conference for podcasters and educational content creators coming up in April, on the 24th of April. And we're going to be speaking about Sweden in the Second World War. Which is a very interesting topic, lots to dig into there. It's going to be a 
the roughly 20 minute presentation and then there'll be time for a Q&A afterwards as well. But we are just one of 40 different people who will be on this conference. So if you get tickets, which you definitely should, you won't just be able to listen to uh, to our presentation, but to so much more amazing content. Yeah, uh, we'll put a link in the episode description and uh, on our social media and Facebook, which uh, has been up a couple of times already, but it's good to remind you. So if you can come along, please do. If not, we'll cover it at some point in about six or seven years time in the podcast. And also just to clarify, by coming along in uh, this pandemic world, that means to log into an event on your computer. The conference is entirely digital. So no need to leave from anywhere, from wherever you are. You can attend this conference online. But uh, I think that's it for today. Yeah, that is uh, bye-bye from us. Bye-bye. Hey, door. determined which church he went to as also said but it was also a further but it was also a further denomination that was used for everything from legal to